You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, good evening. So when I was a senior in high school, I had this amazing job opportunity Most people who lived in my small town in North Dakota wanted to work here, or at least most high schoolers, because I paid $8 an hour. $8 an hour, that was a, uh, the minimum wage back then I think was $5.15 in 2003, so $8 an hour for a high school student, that's pretty righteous bucks. So I wanted that job, and I had a chance to work there. Now the only downside to working there was that the job was telemarketing. Now, if you're a telemarketer, I'm not trying to offend you. I, I kind of had an idea what I was getting into with telemarketing because they'd called me. I knew what the job was kind of about. But I thought, I'd be okay with that. I'll be okay being a telemarketer because it's $8 an hour. My sister had also worked there, been just fine for her. I can do that for $8 an hour. That's fine with me. So I started working there. And what my job was, basically we were contracted from a long-distance company to try to sell long-distance plans to people. So I would call people, I'd start after school about 4 or 5 o'clock, call people, mostly in the south, and interrupt their meal times and their times getting off of work to tell them about long-distance plans and try to sell them a new long-distance plan, which I didn't feel very good about. I had kind of this thinking in my head that you should never call anyone while they're eating, and I felt very guilty about doing that. And I didn't like it. So I didn't really sell that many long-distance plans. They charted everyone's sales on the board, and I didn't make all that much. So one day at work, I got a new assignment. They reassigned me to a new job, uh, hopefully to increase my sales. And they put a lot of people on this work, the ones who weren't selling as much. And the nature of this, this job, when they reassigned me to a selling a different thing, made me feel, <laughs> made me feel very kind of gross about about things. So here's what we would do. Basically, we would call the people on the do not call list. We get the customers for the long distance company who had said we don't want to be called by telemarketers, but we called them up anyways. And here's kind of the the ruse we would use to get to them. Because we wouldn't call trying to sell anything, which made it okay to call. We would call and say, you know, I'm a representative from your long distance company. Do you have any questions about your service? And they say something like, no. And then I would say, well, we would like to keep you informed of any updates to your long-distance service and you know, blah, blah, blah. And as long as they didn't say, no, I don't want to be kept informed, we got to take them off of the do not call list, and then we were able to call them to sell them whatever we wanted because they'd agreed to be kept updated about anything. So that would give us permission to take them off the list. And yeah, my sales went up because most people didn't say no. Most people just said, okay, yeah, whatever, leave me alone. And so my sales went way up, but I felt awful. I felt terrible doing this. These people had gone out of their way to go on the do not call list, but we were calling them anyway. I was interrupting their evening, 
already and offering them something they didn't want and taking them off the list. I didn't like it. So I made it about a month at this job and I quit. I couldn't do it. I thought, and my thinking back then was, I didn't sign up for this. I just wanted the $8 an hour. I didn't sign up to bug people when they're supposed to be relaxing from work and having family time. And I wasn't even like a nice moral guy. That just bothered me so much. And I thought I didn't sign up for this. I just wanted the $8 an hour and I didn't want to do this. I couldn't do it. So I quit. Now that was my thinking back then. The problem though is that is actually exactly what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to make $8 an hour. That was a benefit of working there. What I signed up to do was exactly that, was to call people, try to sell them stuff because I knew I was becoming a telemarketer. So it's very important in, in all types of things, whether it's a job or marriage or whatever, that we know what we're getting into when we sign up for it. Because it shouldn't have been a surprise to me what I was doing. It shouldn't have been a shock. It shouldn't have been something that I just couldn't stand so much that I wanted to quit. See, the problem was I thought I was signing up for the benefit, not for the actual work I was going to be doing. So I want to know that. And it works that way with Jesus too. Now when we're first saved, I don't think we all know exactly what we're getting into, but it's something we need to learn. We need to at some point know what we're doing because a lot of times honestly i think we sign up for the benefits which is which is fine we sign up so that god will have a purpose for us so we'll have eternal life so we'll be forgiven which is fine i'm not saying that's exactly why that is why we should sign up that's why we should follow jesus but we also need to know what we're getting into you know why we're doing it what the work is going to be because if we don't it's it's like with that job. If we think we're just getting the benefits and we don't know what we're signing up for, we, that's where we tend to get very discouraged with following Jesus, where we get very angry with God when things aren't going our way, where we might even quit. And some people have. That's where people say, you know, I, I used to go to church. I tried it. It didn't really do anything for me, so... Now I don't go anymore. And I don't think people usually don't say I'm not a Christian. I quit being a Christian. What they'll say is I quit going to church. I quit reading the Bible. I quit praying, but I'm still a Christian. Well, those things don't make you a Christian, but those are things you will do if you are a Christian. And we can't quit. We cannot quit following Jesus. We have to keep going. It's he who endures to the end who will be saved. So we can't quit. It's like when a bunch of people wanted to quit following Jesus. He told them something they didn't like hearing. And Jesus asked the disciples, are you guys going to leave me too? Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go but to follow Jesus because he has the words of eternal life. So we need to know what we're getting into. We need to know what we're signing up for. We need to have a clear understanding of that so when times get tough, when it seems like we're not getting the benefits of what we signed up for, we still continue on because we have a clear understanding of what we're getting into. That's what Peter ends the letter of 1 Peter with talking about. We're reading the end of the letter tonight. and In a sense, the whole letter has been to remind them, this is what you guys are getting into. He was writing this letter to early Christians. This was written in the, the 60s. In not the 1960s, the, the 60s, like 060, 
about 60 years after the birth of Jesus, about 30 years after his death and resurrection. And the Christian church was just getting started. And he's writing to new Christians. I mean, they were all relatively new Christians, but these were very new. They were non-Jewish Christians. They were Gentile Christians, which means they didn't have the background of the Old Testament. They didn't have a relationship with God like Jewish people did. They were pagans. They were idol worshipers. Somehow, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news that their idols are powerless to do anything. They're powerless to save them. So rather than worshiping idols, they should worship the true God, Jesus, who died to give them a place in his kingdom so that they could be saved. And they heard that message and followed Jesus. Now the problem, what it sounds like from this letter, is their lives may actually have gotten worse. They started suffering in ways they weren't suffering before. They were losing social standing. They were losing business influence. They were losing family members and support who were disowning them. Some were being put in prison. Some were being executed. And in just a few years, empire-wide persecution of Christians was going to begin. So their life got harder. And Peter was writing this letter to say, Hey guys, I know it's tough. I know it is hard. That's what we signed up for. That's what we signed up for. That's what we were getting into by following Jesus. Not a life of ease, not a life of comfort, of self-exaltation, but a life where we are connected with our Creator through our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And he ends the letter by saying, I'm writing to you to tell you about the true grace of God in which you stand. What this is really all about, what true grace means. You know, after I quit my job telemarketing, I went back to my old job, which was just minimum wage. I'd worked there for a couple of years. The job was more physically demanding, paid less, but it was fine. Because I knew what I was getting myself into. I had a clear understanding. Yeah, I know it's not an easier job. I'm working more, and I, don't, I know I don't get paid as much, but that's okay. I know what I'm getting into, and that's okay with me. Right? So there's a difference when you know what to expect, when you know what you're getting into. And that's what Peter is reminding his readers about in this letter. This is what you're getting into. So what's mo- that's what's most important about it, not the benefits, not the, the fringe benefits we get from from following jesus or from anything it's what it what's exactly what's the the meat of it what's the essence so we need to know about the true grace of god in which we stand true grace because you can't quit it's not an option what peter gets at here what my prayer is that that we get an understanding from this section of god's words is that if we know if you know the true grace of God in which we stand, we will continue in faith until the end. So let's read. First of all, read the verses we'll study. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 until the end of the letter. <clears throat> we'll read it and then we'll jump back into it and apply it and learn, learn what it says. So 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. 
To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So again, at the end of Peter's letter, what he's reminding them of is the true grace of God in which they stand. Yeah, your life is difficult now, but that is what you signed up for. That's, that's what following Jesus is about. And I need to remind you about those things. So he tells them exactly what they're signing up for. And the first thing, verses 6 and 7, he reminds them, you didn't sign up, you didn't follow Jesus. And yeah, just to be clear, you don't sign up to be a Christian. I'm just using that phrasing. What you do is deny yourself. That means you quit living for yourself. You realize you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Pick up your cross. That means to the death and follow Jesus. Okay, you, don't, you don't sign up. I'm just using that phrasing. You deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus. You turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and follow Him. Well, we didn't sign up to exalt ourselves. So look at verse 6 and 7 again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So we didn't sign up to exalt ourselves. Now let's, before we look at that, let's, let's take a little minute and do some imagination. Let's imagine here, it's typical church service, any ch- most churches in America, and put yourself there, Imagine the pastor has just finished preaching. He just preached a lovely, a beautiful sermon on how much God loves you. So the worship leader gets up on stage. The lights go dim because that's just what happens, right? When, when the pastor's done, the lights go down because the Holy Spirit works best in darkness, I guess. And the worship leader gets on stage, starts plucking on the strings, just playing some very ethereal sounding notes with a lot of reverb on it, setting the atmosphere, lights go down. And the pastor gives the altar call. It might go something like this. And the lights down, the the music playing. Jesus died for you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has a plan for your life, so you need to find God's will for your life. God has a purpose for you, and God will fulfill you. God will also heal you. He'll take your broken life, and he'll fix it. So do you want to go to heaven when you die? Let's pause the imagination for a second. Because there's a problem with that service, even though it sounds very, very nice, and even in a sense some of it is true, or really all of it's true, there's still a problem there. Everything that he said is about you. It's about us. God has a plan for you. God will fix you. God will heal you. God has a purpose for you. It's about us. It's not about God. It's not about how great God is. It's, he's only great if he gives us something. It's not just about who God is and he's real and, and he's great. So then let's go back to imagination. He might say something like this now. So if you want to go to heaven when you die, pray this prayer with me. So say a prayer, you'll repeat it, maybe out loud, maybe not. And then the pastor will say something like, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. You're a Christian now. Well, you're not. 
Not necessarily. You might be. I shouldn't say you're not. Yeah, I should say you might be. You might not be. But the problem is telling people that when it's not for sure maybe accounts for why so many people are leaving church now and they don't see that as a, a place to go with their problems, to go to their God and Savior because they've been told you're a Christian now. Because you said this little prayer, because you felt good at the moment. And then when life gets hard and your life doesn't go well, well then what's the point? Why would you keep going on if that's what you thought you are getting into? Right? See, that's, that's the problem with that. When it's about exalting ourselves, and that's what Peter's saying, when it's about exalting us, when we think we sign up to exalt ourselves, when we're not exalted but instead we're humbled, that's where we say, no, nah, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's too hard. See, look at, look at verse 6 again. He gives a, Peter gives a command. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's not about exalting us. It's not about making a big deal about me and how great, you know, how God has a plan for me and for my life and he has a purpose for me. It's about him. And for me, my job is to humble myself, not exalt myself. And okay, it's my job also to teach the Bible. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. And I don't know. Honestly, I do not know. I, I wish I could tell you, here's how you humble yourself. Because I don't know. If I could figure it out, if we could figure it out, we'd be in a lot better shape. You see, the Bible's always telling us to humble ourselves and be humble, but it doesn't really say exactly what to do. I wish I could say, you know, here's seven steps to being humble. And H, the first step, H for humble. H means the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. U means you need to be under authority. M means you need moments of silence. I wish I could say it's so easy that it's just a step-by-step thing to be humble, but it's not. Because it goes against everything inside of me that wants to exalt myself. It goes against everything in the culture that says, exalt yourself, and everything is about you, and no one can tell you any different, or they're haters, and they're your enemy, and forget them. It goes against all of that. So it's difficult. Now here's what I do have for it. It doesn't mean you pretend like you're terrible. It doesn't mean when someone calls you beautiful on Instagram, you say, no, I'm ugly, LOL. It doesn't mean when someone says you're good at something, you say, no, I'm terrible. That's not humility. What I think humility is, it's just part of it. But the starting point for me is knowing that God is real. A lot of times we talk about God as far as beliefs and feelings. And yeah, you do have to believe in God, but that's faith. And that's different than like believing in Santa Claus or something. It's knowing that God is real even though you do not see Him. See, God is real. That's a fact. And if He's real, if there is a God who is in charge and He's creator and He says something to do, well, then we should probably do it. If God is real, then it's about Him, not about me. If God is real, then I listen to Him, not my own sinful desires. If God is real, then I live my life for Him, not for myself. That's To me, I think biblically the beginning of humility is understanding that. That God is real. It doesn't care what I think, what I feel, what I believe. He is real, and if He's real, I should adjust my life to fit that. See, it's not about exalting me and and how much God loves me. Yeah, that's great, but it's not all about that. What it's about is that you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's about that he has a mighty hand that he can do with that hand anything he pleases, it says in the Bible. Yet he chooses to use that hand to save his people. That's what it's about. Now Peter gives us 
a reason, a command to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and a reason for doing it. The rest, second part of the verse. That he may exalt you in due time. This is why we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves now so that he'll exalt you in due time. That means at the right time. Because you will be, as a Christian, exalted in God's kingdom if you follow him to the end. See, that's the right time. That's the due time. And I would rather be humbled in this life, I would rather humble myself in this life and be exalted in the next one than be exalted now and be humbled then when I see God face to face. Because that's our choice. We're going to meet God either way. Whether we follow him or whether we don't. Whether we think he's real or we don't. Whether we just say I believe in God but don't really follow him or, or we do. We're going to see him either way. And what you can do, you can humble yourself now and say, yeah, God, you're real, so I'm going to live for you and follow you even if it's not convenient for me so that when I do see you, here's what, what you say. God, I know I'm a sinner, but your son Jesus has saved me and I have tried by the power of your Holy Spirit to live that out in my life. And what the Bible says is, you're, you're saved. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. The other option is to exalt ourselves now. Either by saying, I don't think there's a God, so I don't have to listen to him. Or by saying, I think there is a God, but I don't have to listen to him. I don't, I don't have to do anything he says. Because it's about me. God just wants what's best for me. And you exalt yourself now. And you will be humbled when you see him. Because it says in Philippians, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you'll be exalted now and humbled then. You want to be exalted at the right time, which isn't right now. And that's hard. Jesus explained it like this. He told a parable. And I'll just kind of paraphrase it. He talked about if you go to a wedding. He said, sit in the back seat. Sit in the back seat at the wedding. Because then someone important in the wedding will see you back there and say, hey, Come on up to the front. Sit up front. See, the idea is that person humbled himself so that he would be exalted at the right time. He said, don't go to a wedding and sit in the front seat. Because if you sit in the front seat and someone important in the wedding sees you, they'll say, hey, you need to move back a few rows. This is someone else's seat. That's someone who wanted to be exalted right now and ended up being humbled. And when you want to be in front is when the wedding is happening, not before it. And so if you want to sit in the front seat now, you're going to be moved to the back seat once the wedding starts. If you say, okay, I'm going to sit in the back seat now so that when the wedding starts, God will call me forward. That's the idea. Humble yourself now so you'll be exalted at the right time. Now verse 7 says a way of doing that. One of the ways we can humble ourselves now. It says, Cast, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, that's your adult Awana memory verse. You should all memorize that one if you haven't already. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Now, that verse in itself, that's very beautiful. And just what it says straight up is something, I, I want you to remember that. You can throw all your cares, all your burdens onto him because he cares for you. And it's not about you, it's about him. That's how great he is, how loving he is, that he is omnipotent and he's in control of everything. He's the God of the universe. And he says, give me your, 
all your cares, your, your little problems, your big problems, because I care about you. Yeah, I could do a whole sermon on that, but here's, I just want to hit on one thing here about this verse. Now, I have an English degree from college. I was an English teacher for nine years, and I'm not anymore. I'm a full-time pastor, so I, I want to still use my English credentials, so bear with me. I'm going to give a, a mini English lesson. So casting all your care upon him, that's called a participial phrase. And a participial phrase always modifies the subject of the sentence. The subject of the sentence is you, because it's a command. It says, humble yourselves. Who's doing the humbling? You. So it's an implied subject, you. Casting all your care is a participial phrase that modifies you. It describes you. It describes a way that you humble yourself. Now here's the point. It's a little worded a little awkwardly in English. It's it's the same kind of thing in, in Greek, which it's originally written in. Here's how you could reword it. Casting all your care upon him, comma, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So what it's saying is casting all your care upon him is a way of humbling yourself. And that's beautiful to me. Yeah, it's hard to humble ourselves, but God is saying one of the ways you humble yourself, cast your cares on him. Get rid of those cares. Throw them over to him. Cast them to him. Because he's telling you, I care about you. I want your burdens. And if you're saying, no, I'm going to keep it. That's not humbling yourself. The way you humble yourself is to give all your cares to God. It seems win-win to me, but it's a lot easier said than done. But it gets to the essence of humility. Worry is a form of pride. It's rejecting this verse. And a lot of other stuff Jesus says about how you can give all your burdens to him, saying, no, I'm going to worry about that because my little worry is going to accomplish something that the God of the universe cannot do. No, that's pride. That's not humbling yourself. It's humbling to cast your cares to him. So we don't sign up to exalt ourselves. We sign up to humble ourselves. If you say, I'm going to follow Jesus just as a way to fulfill myself, to, which is good, he will fulfill you. But if that's all you're wanting, I, you're going to get angry, discouraged, maybe even want to quit. We signed up to humble ourselves. Then our faith doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. The second thing, if we didn't sign up to have it easy, We didn't sign up to exalt ourselves, and we didn't sign up to have it easy. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And we didn't sign up to have it easy. Now it's been, just to be honest, it's been pretty difficult for my wife Adrian and I lately. Been having a hard, I would say, year for the most part. We've had the two miscarriages in the past year, which I've talked a lot about, but it hurts. And it's the time of year where we had our first miscarriage, so a lot of those feelings are coming up again. It's been hard in the church, to be honest. I mean we're we're trying to do so much. We're trying to we're just, trying, we're just trying to get some momentum. We're trying to get more people to hear God's word and to be part of his body. Sometimes it just seems like nothing is getting, there's no, we're spinning our wheels, I guess. It's been hard. 
We've been very busy lately. I was finishing up the school year, working two jobs and two little kids. Been busy. We've had life changes. I've changed jobs. I'm starting as a full-time pastor. Adrian's been struggling with depression and demonic oppression, which I think go together a lot of times. I mean, it's been hard. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard season. And what we've been doing, I don't know if other couples do this, but we've been having these huge mega discussions, like three, four, five hours. Sometimes they take like all day. And we're working that in and out with the kids and stuff. But it it goes on a long time, trying to work all these issues out. Now, we're always civil. It's not always productive. We're trying to work out all these issues. And it seems like we were so busy and we didn't have a lot of time. And whenever we had time, we were trying to work on some of these issues and talk it out. And it's been, been really hard. And after one of these discussions, you know, hours and hours, it didn't seem like we were going anywhere. I remember standing in my living room and looking out the front window and just kind of having this thought. It would be so much easier if we weren't Christians. It would be a lot easier. We wouldn't have the problems with church. We wouldn't be so busy. We wouldn't have demonic oppression. It would be so much easier if we weren't Christians. You know, yeah, before we were Christians, we were ruining our lives. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it would be better, but it would be easier. Now, if I didn't know Jesus personally, if I didn't have a real relationship with Jesus, if I didn't know his word and what he says about times like this, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit living within me, thoughts like that, If it is so hard, and I think, oh, it was easier before I was a Christian, I'd be very tempted to just give up and take, maybe give up entirely or take a step back in my faith and say, I'm not going to keep moving forward. It's just too hard. In a lot of ways, after following Jesus, our lives have gotten much harder. But it's also gotten better. We don't always make that clear in altar calls and evangelizing is what really... It's about. You know, let's go back to imagination. Imagine this altar call, which seems to me fit more with the way Jesus talked to people who always got right to their issues, who didn't sugarcoat anything. He told it like it is. And it's more like this. You know, God is real. Again, we talked about this. God is real. It's not up for debate. Yeah, you can say you don't believe in him, but that's not going to hold up when you stand in front of him. In judgment, God is real. And God is real, and He is in control, and He has some laws which you have broken. He has said, do not covet, and you've coveted. He has said, do not lie, and you've lied. He said, do not steal, and you've stolen. He said, do not commit adultery, and you've lusted. And if you've broken laws, you are accountable to the penalty for them. That's how it works. You deserve justice for how you've been hurt. The people you've hurt deserve justice. And a just God is going to give them that justice. So that means you are condemned. You have a penalty to pay and you are condemned. But God sent his son to this world to live perfectly. He didn't break any of God's laws. So he could die in your place as a substitute for you. He paid your penalty with his perfect life and his shed blood on the cross. He paid for your condemnation. So even though you're guilty, it's paid. There's nothing left for you to pay, which means you are forgiven. But you need to follow him. 
Yeah, you will have new enemies. You will have new hardship. You will have new difficulties. And you'll care about things that never used to bother you before. And it will probably be the most difficult thing you will ever do. But since God is real and your only way out of condemnation is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus, you have to. Just know what you're getting into. Count the cost. That's more like what Jesus said. So Peter here in these verses is reminding his readers that they didn't give up their pagan lifestyles to have it easy and do nothing. We didn't sign up to have it easy. Look at the command, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. He's telling them to do something. And the idea is you need to be watching out, be sober, be clear-headed, be vigilant, be on the lookout. It's not passive. You don't sit back and have it easy. You're doing things. And he has a reason for it. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant, because you have an enemy. Now, we already had some enemies before we were Christians. We had ourselves. We, ourselves, we were our own enemy because we were slaves to our sin, to the lust of our flesh. Whatever our body wanted to do, we probably did it even if we hated it afterwards. Even if we hated it while we were doing it. We were a slave to our flesh. We were our own enemy. We already had the world that was telling us that's okay. It's okay to do whatever you want even if you hate it because if it feels good, do it. We have another enemy now. The devil, Satan, demons. See, before we were Christians, he left us alone. He didn't care. His goal is to stop us from coming to God. He left us alone, but now now we have an enemy. So that means we need to know. Be sober, be vigilant. Know how he works, what he says, because they're all lies. When you hear that voice, you're a failure. You should quit. You're not good enough. You should be over this by now. Those are lies. Because it says he is looking for someone to devour. He is looking for someone he can devour, whose faith he can sidetrack or ruin. But here's, here's what I love. It says he's looking, he's not on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. See, that, we should be scared of that. It says he's roaring, he's looking for someone to devour like a roaring lion. That means he's not being sneaky. Lions don't roar when they're trying to sneak and hunt something and kill something. They roar when they're posturing. It's a way of saying, I'm here, be afraid of me, run away. That's what he's doing. He's trying to scare you into not following Jesus. He's trying to intimidate you and lie to you to get you to step away from your faith and not follow him because he's a roaring lion. It's posturing. Because he's been defeated at the cross already. Jesus earned your salvation, not you, so it doesn't matter about you, but he's still going to lie to you and he's going to whisper to you. See, Jesus has defeated him and Jesus even allows him to keep working and to keep influencing. He says in the New Testament that to deliver someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that they'll turn back to God. So he's unwittingly doing God's work because Jesus is in control. It's not a battle of equals. Jesus is in control. And it tells you, verse 9, what to do about that. Because he's looking for someone to devour. He's a roaring lion. He's whispering in people's ears. And if you don't think he'll whisper in your ear, Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. You know, if you're the son of God, turn this rock into 
bread. Right? He got whispered. He got tempted. It happens to us too. But he says what to do about that. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It just says resist him. It doesn't say listen to his lies. It just says resist him, stand firm in your faith, steadfast in your faith. And it's faith which is important. Now the armor of God in Ephesians talks about the shield of faith and that we can get kind of cute with the armor idea, but here's the idea, that faith is enough to stop Satan's attacks. It'll quench the fiery darts of the enemy. It doesn't mean they're not thrown at you. It means your faith will stop them when you know who God is and what he says. Because here's the truth. The Bible says that God is true. There is no lie in him and he cannot lie. Satan, on the other hand, is the father of lies and it's his native language. You don't need to listen to Satan. You resist him steadfast in your faith knowing that what God says is true. And when he tells you this, that you can resist him, that's true. And you fight back with the sword of God's word. And you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The same physical sufferings, mental suffering, spiritual suffering, other people are facing it too. So we didn't sign up to have it easy. If we did, we wouldn't have enemies. And God wouldn't allow those enemies. So we didn't sign up to have it easy. It's very important you know that because if what you want is ease, there's easier temporary answers to some of our problems. Not solutions, but answers. And they're easier, and they're not good. I'm not saying that. But if what you want is ease, you'll be tempted to drink instead of pray, to do drugs instead of pray, to numb yourself with technology instead of pray, to just do whatever you want instead of pray, to build up your self-esteem instead of seek after God. Because those things are easier. And if that's what you want, it's what your body's going to tell you to do, and you'll do it. We didn't sign up to have it easy. But we need to know now what we did sign up for. And these things need to be important to us. It's not about the, the little benefits that God has a plan, which is great. I don't want to downplay that, but here's what we're really getting into. Verses 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, this is what we signed up for. That the God of all grace would lead you to his glory by Christ Jesus. That means that God loved you first before you loved him. It means that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That God of all grace would lead you to his glory, not to your glory and self-exaltation, but to his glory by Christ Jesus because there's no other way to the Father but by Jesus. And it's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, which is only through Jesus. So it's by Jesus we will be brought to God's glory because he is the God of all grace. And here's what he says he'll do. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. You're going to suffer a while. It's probably your whole life. I think that's what he's getting at here. I don't think it was going to get much better for these people he's writing to until the next life. After you've suffered a while, may God perfect you. That means to make complete. In Greek, it's the same word to say fix what's broken. May God perfect you when you're reunited with your creator, with the source of life. Because you, Jesus says eternal life is to know God. And you can know him today. Eternal life starts the moment you know God. Because you're perfected, you're completed. 
You're reunited with the source of life in your creator. May God establish you. That means to turn you in the right direction, to deny yourself and follow Jesus because yourself is not the right direction. Living for yourself doesn't make anyone fulfilled or joyful. Following Jesus does. May he establish you. May he strengthen you with his mighty hand. May he settle you, which means make a foundation for you. The rock that you can build your life upon. I hope those are the things that are important to us. Not that we would be made a big deal out of, not that our lives would be easy, but that we would really care that God has grace and we will see his glory by Christ Jesus. And while we're waiting for that, that he will perfect us. He will establish us. He will strengthen us and he will settle us. That's what we sign up for. And that's how we keep going. So let's finish the letter. We'll end tonight. These last few verses. By Silvanus, our faithful brothers, I consider him. I have written to you briefly. Yeah, Peter wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but so, or he, he spoke it, but Silvanus or Silas wrote it down. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. He, he ends the letter, which connects with tonight and all this letter. Go back and read it. This, he's written to them to tell them about the true grace of God in which they stand. True grace means that he will lead you to his glory by Christ Jesus, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, not give you a life where it's all about you and a life that's easy. This is what true grace is about. It's that, yeah, it's hard and you will suffer, but you have a homeland, not on this earth, but in the next one with Jesus. Now, Jesus talked about the same stuff. Yeah, we we finished the letter, but I want to read Luke Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. Because Jesus says the same thing. But that we've got to know what we're getting into, so we'll keep going. Keep going until the end. It says in Luke 14, starting at verse 25, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And hate there doesn't mean like hateful feelings. It's just a contrast to the love of Jesus. It says if you don't love Jesus more than those people, you cannot be his disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And bearing a cross isn't like a cute little burden you have. It's, it's a death sentence and it's humiliating and shameful. And if you're not willing to do that to the end, you cannot be his disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. If you're going to build something, you're going to make sure you can finish it or you're not going to start. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. If you're going to attack someone and you don't think you can win, you're going to go and make peace. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
See, Jesus says, count the cost. Or you cannot be his disciple. If you're not a Christian, no sugarcoating. See, people then come to Jesus and said, how can I be a Christian? Well, let me lead you in this prayer. He said, count the cost, or you cannot be my disciple. So count the cost. Know what you're getting into, but also count the cost of eternity. What eternity is going to mean. If you exalt yourself now, and you'll be humbled then. So you need to do. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's not just being sorry for what you've done and trying to do better. It's being sorry for what you've done and knowing all you can do is ask forgiveness. And if you've accepted that forgiveness, then you're going to live your life. You're going to follow him. For those of us who are Christians, let's remember what we're doing here. It's not about self-exaltation. It's not about ease. It's about that the God of all grace will bring us to his glory by Christ Jesus. And that after we've suffered a while, he will perfect us, establish us, strengthen us, and settle us. Because if Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this earth to die in humility on the cross, why should we expect a life of ease and exaltation? Let's pray. Oh, Father, First, I want to confess to you that a lot of times I've wanted self-exaltation and ease at the expense of following you. God, may you help us to know what it's all about, to take comfort in that you are the God of all grace and you will strengthen us, establish us, settle us, and perfect us. God, I pray for those who are listening who aren't Christians, that you would show them you are real and they have a penalty to pay, but your son has paid it on their behalf. Thank you, God, for being so loving and forgiving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.